1: welcome to the long form podcast. Uh, I'm your co-host Aaron Lammer here with only one compadre this week. It's just us, Evan Ratliff. Hey, first time ever, just the two of us. I know. I'm. I'm Let's go I'm, crazy. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm worried about what's going to happen. <laughs> but it's just the two Te- of us. for- Technical errors would not be the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> um, A very good reason why it's just the two of us. Yes, we are. Um, We haven't actually gotten this cleared, but I think we're just going to go for it anyway. Um, Max is not here um, because he is celebrating the birth of his... First child, uh, Guy Linsky. Welcome, Guy Linsky, Welcome, to the Guy, world. Welcome, Guy Linsky. Uh, we're going to have a podcast with him next week. <laughs> um, but uh, congratulations to Max and his wife, and uh, we are uh, we are very happy to have a uh, small uh, human being uh, in our orbit. Here. Joyful times. <laughs> and in addition to that, who yeah. did you talk to? Uh, I talked to Sean Wilsey. Um he first came onto my radar because he wrote a book called "Oh the Glory of It All," which is about his quite unusual uh, childhood and teenage years. Um, and he has moved on. He's he's pretty heavily involved in McSweeney's stuff. He has a book coming out now called "More Curious," which is a collection of like last decade or so of nonfiction. He's written about living in Marfa, about soccer. He's written about NASA. He he will go he will go anywhere um, for a weird story. Yeah, he's um, got range. Yeah. So uh, that, that went really well. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's actually moving to Brooklyn, I think, um, or did move to Brooklyn. So if you see him on the street, mention this podcast for 10% off. Um, <laughs> now, if you wanted to mention something to someone, Aaron, yeah. how would you do that? Um, I would start a tiny letter uh, newsletter. Um, they are our sponsor this week. It's a really simple way to start communicating with people personally, professionally, whatever. Make a tiny letter. Get people who need to sign up signed up. You're good to go.
2: And now here's Aaron with Sean Wilsey.
1: Welcome, Sean Wilsey. Hello. Hey, thanks. I talked to your publicist, and I don't know if you're coming or going right now, but you're definitely you're definitely on the move. Are you in New York? Are you not in New York? I'm in New
2: York now. Presently. Uh, presently, I am here. And then I I, I guess... In my bio, I live in Marfa, Texas. And then I keep getting teased by people who are like, don't you live in Marfa when I'm not? And I actually I felt like the only criteria that I could really have to decide that was when I wrote the bio, I was living in Marfa. I think I'm moving back here next year, and anyway, I'm on a book tour now, so I'm not really sure where you don't I'm You know what the based. book's going on. I don't know, no, I have no idea.
1: So, I actually, I know, like, a little bit of your history, because I, I, uh, I read your book, actually, I worked in publishing when I was about, when when did when did uh, Oh the Glory of All come out? What year was that? 2005. 2005, okay, so I was, uh, I was tw- a, tw- a 23-year-old novice in the publishing. They had a nice yeah. bin of uh, free books oh, right. that people had gotten as galleys. And I liked the cover. Had a great cover. Thanks. I picked it out, and I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. So I know a little bit about um, your life up until the point when you're about 22, I would say. Yeah. And I don't that, remember that book's twerk trail off.
2: It it the, it kind of jumps into my 30s a little bit, just to conclude things, but it's mostly yeah, There's barely even any tw- I'm working on a memoir now that is really about my 20s
1: yeah well I was interested so for people who haven't read the book um it details a lot of your experiences at um I don't want to, uh, reform schools are the wrong world alternative uh, uh, alternative schools that are not optional two of them
2: were reform schools and one of them was a school run by a nun who had left her order because she deeply felt that boys needed to be worked with in a way that she couldn't as a nun and so she had this this all boys academy in the woods of Connecticut, and and then and then there were a couple of somewhat uh, conventional schools. One in in San Francisco, another one a prep school in Massachusetts that I just flamed out of.
1: Where did that spit you out? Uh, uh, out of when you were done with those?
2: I wound up being an apprentice gondolier. That's what you get for going to five. I never graduated from high school, and I uh, the last reform school that I went to was in Italy and I was sent to this school through the state of California. I had stolen a, I'd stolen a as a Texan. Yeah. I'll be a Texan here for a second. I just got my motorcycle <laughs> license and it was really satisfying to finally get my motorcycle license after spending a lot of time on two wheeled modes of transportation. And I stole a scooter when I was a teenager, just flat out st- stole one on the street in San Francisco and it was like as somebody who cares about aesthetics it was kind of a lame scooter to steal but it wasn't a Vespa so maybe that was like why I stole it because I would have felt bad stealing a Vespa from somebody but it was kind of a crapped out Yamaha Riva and I just drove that thing into the ground and got had it for quite a while and then I was caught trying to spin donuts on a public park in San Francisco and I was taken to juvenile hall and I already had like something of a I think there's a moment when you're failing miserably as a teenager or I guess at any point in your life where you start running a thwart of the law and you start to understand that this is something that could be the rest of your life and you're just going to keep like cops start noticing you. There's stuff. You just aren't part of the invisible part of society. And I had already been like picked up for various other infractions throughout that year. And this time I got fully locked up. I was getting processed through the system. I had a probation officer and I wasn't I had no relationship with my parents at this point at all. And i had been kind of living with friends and just sort of sponging around and had some some weird brief jobs. And the my parents sort of arrived on the scene and said they'd found this alternative school started by Peggy Guggenheim's cousin uh, are funded by her to help Irish street kids and <laughs> like the occasional miscreant from the U S and the Irish street kids got to go there for free. And the U S miscreants were all sort of allowed to come on some kind of sliding pay scale. Anyway, my parents worked out this deal with the state and the state was like, all right, if you, if you agree to go to this program, we will release you because it's not like they want you in their system. right? And so, I went and ended up living in Italy for for 4 years. I went through this really intensive confrontational program with a lot of Irish kids and a lot of a lot of other random people and I never got a diploma. So my education was really kind of a wash. I remember taking the SAT while I was in that school and I was already like 19 at this point and I scored I guess they've changed the scoring system, so this may be slightly meaningless, but I got an 1130, which is, like, not a very good score. And this guy took me and said, he's like, you have gotten the best score on the SAT that anyone in these programs has ever gotten. Well, that and- was
1: something I thought about while I was wondering. I mean, did you realize that – did you think, wow, I'm kind of different than people who are in these reform schools, or did you see yourself as a peer?
2: Oh, no, I didn't think I was different at all. No, no way. I felt very much like uh, – I mean, I always felt kind of like a stateless person. And, uh, you know, just because that was the that was the family history that I came out of. And I just never felt like I quite belonged. But I did feel very at home there. I mean, I actually if the school hadn't imploded as so many of this kind of program does, I really could have seen myself becoming a counselor, like working with kids. I actually really loved it. And I felt very at home there. So I had this this score that was really shitty and wasn't actually going to get me into any college and every college that I ultimately applied to. Rejected me except for the new school. And I ended up going to the new school. But prior to that, I wound up working as an apprentice to a gondolier in Venice and the gondoliers are all. I was a skateboarder as well. And I felt like rowing a a Venetian boat, which is this long skinny thing that you stand up on was a lot like skateboarding and they're kind of these societal misfits that yet embody the spirit of a city. And I always have felt like skateboarders in San Francisco are really like a very, very perfect match with each other.
1: Do our people feel shorted when they get an American gondolier in Venice? I never
2: said that I was an American. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs>
1: No way. <You> just stay, <laughs> stayed really quiet? Yeah, no,
2: I mean, I spoke Italian, and I just never, I just faked it.
1: <laughs> get on the boat and row.
2: Yeah, you just row. There's, um, that's what it's all about.
1: And, when, and then you went to the new school after that? I did go to the new school after that. At what point did you start processing these life experiences and going, wow, I should maybe write about this?
2: Well, I started working in magazines as soon as I got to New York. I got a job at Newsweek and I worked there as a letters correspondent, which was a job that I loved where you would have to just answer the mail. I mean, you'd have to read the mail and you'd have to evaluate anything that needed a response. And this was like such representative of such a different time in magazines because it was a whole department and there were lots of us in there. Yeah. And then there was the letters editor and we put together the letters column. Yeah. But like every piece of correspondence was taken really seriously. Well, so what's
1: like a typical letter that doesn't get printed, but gets a response?
2: The one that comes to mind is that Steven Seagal's lawyer wrote in upset about how Steven Seagal had been characterized, and I guess it it, it had been like a linguistic quibble where our reporter had described Seagal as being in a state of high dudgeon and <laughs> Seagal's lawyer was like refused to acknowledge that this is a legitimate use of the term high dudgeon and that it was possibly slightly pejorative towards Seagal. And it was bullshit and Newsweek wasn't worried about it, but they also felt like this is a public figure, The. he's bothered to get his lawyer to write in. So we had to craft a response, like a mollifying response. And I was in charge of doing that. So you would put together a draft, you would yeah. you would look at the original piece, you would look at what their quibble was with it, and then you'd think of what to say. And then the letters editor, this guy Bill Christofferson, who was a really good bluegrass banjoist as well, would take your letter and look at it and mark it up and then you'd take it through drafts. And it was like, I, it, I learned a lot about writing because yeah. it was just having your stuff worked on.
1: That may be of all the people who've been on this show who've described previous jobs, the most defunct job in the so, magazine industry. So, that, like that one, went before a bunch of the other jobs. Well, it was so,
2: a paper job too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it all just came piling in in these bags. Yeah,
1: and you'd have to go through
2: it, and then but it was still then a real deal job. Yeah, and then there was fact checking involved in checking the column, and it wasn't like. I can't quite remember how fact checking worked at the magazine as a whole but you would have to fact check the letters column yourself. Yeah. And then I got hired as a checker at Ladies Home Journal and I worked as a checker there for which I guess just went out of business, you know, like earlier this year. And that was a lo- the first article I worked on there was about vulvodynia, which is like a burning vulval syndrome and I had to call a lot of women who had it and I was whatever 21 <laughs> <laughs> just ask a lot of personal questions yeah i remember specifically having to find out whether it indeed burned and itched and the <laughs> respondent was said yes it did and yeah. i checked it off
1: and- at that point were you like um maybe i'll slip like a piece into this lady's home journal uh, after I finished fact checking this Burning Vulva piece? or
2: I did not feel a very strong urge to write for LHJ. It was all like a really pretty basic service journalism that, and it would have been great to get paid, but the checking didn't leave that much time. And then I was still in school. So it was like classes at night, ladies' home journal during the day. And then I was trying to write a novel. So I would always go home and try to write my novel. What was the novel all about? It was an amazing novel that one day will I don't know. <laughs>
1: like I, we're, 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 we want to publish a compendium of like um, like pro- people who are professional nonfiction uh, writers now is college college fiction. Thank that, you. It's, it's every it's it's all out there. It needs to be no one no one will ever show it. Like no everyone tells me that, but I never get to see any of this failed. Um, I'm gonna send fiction. it to you yeah. immediately. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So so at that point, like, what was what was the first thing you put out that was like? by Sean Wellesley, like, your own writing?
2: Well, I had worked in San Francisco briefly for... I mean, I'd actually, like, my first magazine job was when I was 12. I was a messenger for a fashion magazine in San Francisco called Scene Magazine, and that was possibly my favorite job ever because I really liked just walking around the city or skating around the city um, and just delivering stuff. It was awesome. And I would go and get sandwiches for the writers, and that was... That was my introduction to magazines, and I got I got on the masthead, which was really satisfying. And then I published something in uh, like a neighborhood thing, which oddly enough Dave Eggers worked for as well, right around the same time. He was a cartoonist, and I was a reporter. It was called North Beach Now, and it was just a you know North Beach, obviously. Famous beatnik area, and it's still. We
1: used to go when I was in uh, when I was in high school. We would go into San Francisco and we'd go to the uh, the Steps of Rome, which yeah. is right by there. Well, and we'd order one bottle of lo- wine with like seven men, each drinking right. like a half glass yeah, of, of, of wine, just sit- sitting there. Hoping that women would walk by our table. Steps
2: of Rome on Columbus. Yeah, I wrote a, a piece about Steps of Rome and all the other cafes. It, I think that's my answer. Actually, that it was like, for the North. My Beach first news. piece Oh, that North had Beach like now. my byline was for North Beach now. Although I had, no, I'd written something for the Examiner, the San Francisco Examiner, when I was like fourteen, that they published. Weirdly, I guess I had like a pretty good, pretty good luck, like getting stuff published, but. That piece, I remember going back years later, and it was still, you know, Cafe Tosca. Mm-hmm. They still had it up in their window. Oh, nice! <laughs> you know, Very like nice. Ten years later, or more. People would write me and be like, "Oh, I read your piece about it." <laughs> I'd
1: be like, "Really?" Um, so, I mean, were you in the orbit of like Dave, like the early Mick Sweeney, no. Dave Eggers stuff? No, no,
2: not at all. Just no overlap whatsoever. Like we were, I, I think we actually lived in San Francisco at the same time. Yeah, but I never knew him. We didn't meet until until
1: New York. Hey, quick word from our sponsor GoDaddy. Uh, GoDaddy is releasing hundreds of new domains that tell people who you are and what you do. They've got Dot guru, dot club, dot photography, and dot expert. There's options for just about everything, and you're going to get the best chance of getting the perfect name for you by registering it right now, not later. Um, Get on there before someone steals it away from you. You're going to go to GoDaddy.com and enter promo code form30. You're going to save 30% on your order. That's 30% for long form listeners, plus you're going to help support this show. Um, There's some limitations. Go on the website for details. Thank you again, GoDaddy, for sponsoring. Sponsoring this show. Here I am back with Sean Wilsey. The first piece in, in the, the new collection you have out, which is called More Curious for those yeah. interested, um, is a piece on Marfa that I think is in one of the very earliest. It was McSweeney's. in McSweeney's 2. McSweeney's 2. So what, what year is that? That's.
2: I wrote it in 98. 98. And it actually, I it came out at the very
1: beginning in 99. 99. So, I mean, how how did you how did you place a piece in McSweeney's uh, in 1999? Dave and I had a friend in common,
2: Ellen Umansky, who is a good writer, and she had been involved in Might and moved to New York. And Ellen, I was working at the New Yorker in the fiction department. Ellen was at Columbia in the writing program and was an intern And she was like, "You got to meet this guy," because she knew I just like read stuff and was interested in sort of everything. She's she was like, "You got to meet," and I'd read *Might*. So she was like, "You got to meet Dave. He's he's here. He's working for *Esquire* now, and he started this new magazine." So we ended up meeting at a bar, and I picked up McSweeney's one, and was just like, "I guess I can curse, right?" In this context, whatever you want, like fucking. Amazed by it because prior to that the literary magazine situation had just been so twee and it was so funny and so weird and so just right. You just felt like you were reading something that needed to exist and that I was just stoked on. And so I, I sent him, I'd written up this thing about Marfa as a talk of the town piece. My wife was a reporter. She had gotten sent to Marfa to cover this symposium on architecture And art, and this was in 98. And for whatever, I think it was called the Architects Journal, the magazine she was writing for. And I just tagged along, and I found the whole place intriguing and the whole event intriguing. And so I wrote it up as a Talk of the Town piece. Talk of the Town set it up in type, which was really exciting, and then killed it. But I had never really imagined myself writing long form journalism. I thought I was going to become a novelist. And I felt then, though, that I'd written this thing and that I cared about it. And I sent it to Dave and because McSweeney's was all about publishing things that had been orphaned by other magazines. And he was like, just make it longer. So I went back to it and made it longer. And the, the talk of the town piece, which was like a thousand words, which was already long, turned into this over 10,000 word long piece about. Marfa.
1: Then I have a question about that, which is, uh, is sort of a general question. I'm, I'm in- curious about your work as a whole. Yeah. That, so when you make that jump from a thousand word to a 10,000 word piece, some of the stuff that starts uh, creeping in. Yeah. Is like encounters at a gas station, like really very sort of specific sure. things that have happened. I mean, you really sort of open up the floodgate. So. Like, what kind of notes are you taking on a, on a trip like that, that you don't even know you're going to turn in a piece that you have enough material for a 10,000 word piece?
2: Well, there were always memorable anecdotes in Marfa and Daphne, my wife, was always around for them. So between the two of us, it was usually pretty easy to, to or, or a lot of the time you would just write stuff down and email it to people because you'd just be like, dude, look what just happened here. Yeah. So it wasn't hard to really come up with all of that stuff. I mean, I think for me, it was my first example. Like the, a big section to that piece, a couple thousand words, is about this siege that took place between these Texas separatists right. and the state of Texas itself. And there were, you know, shots were fired, people were killed. It was a big deal. Yeah, it's kind of like a mini Waco kind of situation. It was a mini Waco. Yeah. Like a comical Waco. Yeah, it was yeah. quite funny at the same Ma- time. made Waco
1: seem well planned.
2: Yeah. It was an exciting, you know, it was an exciting clip job. Yeah. Um, and it was Fun to figure out how to write that stuff and to weave it into my own narrative and uh, it's what my mom recently read this book and she was like sean you're really very good at making something
1: out of nothing
2: <laughs> and i was like really flattered well i was I, like thanks mom because a lot of that's what a lot of journalism is you know and, I, and
1: um, I would agree with that assessment and i'm curious like when you construct something like that yeah um and like if you read through your collection you i think that there is an evolution of how you treat that sort of yeah, like tacking things on and and, sure. and adding elements like that. It has like uh, the closest corollary I can think is a you know a bit like in poetry where one stanza can be sort of set you know describing a historical event and then the next one sort of in the present and you can sort of jump, jump. fluidly. I like to do that And my question is how do you know whether something fits or doesn't fit? So when you write that separatist thing and your editor goes, Hey, uh, hey, Sean. Uh, you know w- what was up with that whole like a uh, two thousand word aside about um, about well, the separatists? How do you defend that? It's a really how good question. It, it can't
2: it can't be an aside. Yeah. It has to feel like it fits into the organic material of what you're trying to say in the piece as a whole. And so once you know that what you're trying to say, then mm-hmm. you can decide. Oh, does this thing fit in? Does this kind of bolster my argument? Does it add to the portrait?
1: Your collection um, is bookended with two pieces on on Marfa. Right. The first one written as sort of a, a travelogue of a of a um, an anecdote based travelogue of yeah. someone visiting for the first time, and the second piece is some years later when you've spent time living in Marfa and, right. and you're writing it sort of from the perspective of a um, a resident of of a kind. When you when you said I'm going to put out to do these pieces. What were you trying to capture about Marfa? What What was the nature of, of how you wanted to write about it?
2: Well, I think it's just an emblematic place. It represents freedom in this very American way where you can go there and in some ways just do whatever you want. Uh, it's very inexpensive there. There's so much... Nature and beauty there. It's so remote Mm -hmm. that it's just not going to get ruined very easily. I mean, it's like the Old West. You know, this idea of the frontier is still very alive in Marfa, and yet it also is really sophisticated. There's a lot of really high art there. There's a lot of, it's like an edgy, almost adult Sesame Street yet set in in the Wild West type of situation where you're, it's very neighborly, it's very warm in some ways get flinty and odd and it has a lot of the tension of new york to it um but marfa although of course like i i'm like try, i'm positioning myself as like the bard of marfa or something and i know
1: there's so many people in uh, yeah. Marfa are uh, like pissed off at you. yeah like, well yeah. i think that's sort of part of my part of what what, what i find curious about it is like you know, there's everything on the spectrum from, yeah. uh, you know, a, a travel piece that's like, come to Marfa, you can stay in a teepee, and like they've got all this great, vi- this great vintage hotel, and then there's like a more sort of art based, you know, yes. this is thing like that, and 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 what you seem to be doing is sort of playing with the styles of all of those kinds of pieces, right? But towards a different end potentially.
2: I don't know what my end really is other than that <laughs> I'm actually curious about the place. Like it, right. I do it is sort of endlessly interesting. Yeah.
1: to me and I guess everywhere
2: is but that place happens
1: to be where I've wound up. You you've you've worked pretty steadily for the last 15 or 20 years, but you're not like a guy who does like a Hollywood profile or um, you don't have like a sort of a set formula for the kind of pieces you do. So I'm interested, like the NASA piece that you did in, 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 uh, in the collection. Yeah. As I understand I, I may be mistaken about that. That came to you sort of as a commission, like, Hey, you should go write about NASA. Totally. There's, 8 million different ways you could you could approach writing about NASA like what what kicks you down a certain lane of this is how I'm going to tell the story of, of NASA today
2: it seemed like NASA was about to have this big redux where they were about to just get fully funded and develop a whole new system of getting into orbit and then proceeding to the moon building a base, having a permanent base on the moon, and then just like going to Mars. And everybody at NASA was, I literally almost said, everybody at MARFA, everybody at NASA was stoked about it. And there was tons of excitement and energy. And yet they were also clearly fearful that it was all going to fall apart, which it did. And so they were really open. They were really willing to talk about it. people aren't necessarily that interested in NASA post-shuttle or even post apollo you know success like somehow it was like everybody just like our national attention just dropped away from nasa with occasional spikes here and there right but i guess the thing that hooked me into it as well is that i'd never been in such a pure environment everybody it just felt like the best of our country all these brilliant people totally secular Uh, Although there were some people who were (laughs) – there was one guy who was just talking about God all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Just how God wants – this is God's mandate. (laughs) And he was one of the dudes in Alabama, of course. (laughs) But it's also spread all over the country. I mean, not that many people know how NASA works. It is – they've got all these space centers that are devoted to different aspects of either study or exploration or manned space flight. And they're peppered all over the country in order to spread the money around. Uh, So different communities benefit from getting jobs that are coming out of NASA, although the amount of money in the budget for NASA now is just minuscule compared to what it used to be. It used to have really... I want to say this is in the piece and I can't remember specifically, but something unbelievable, like five percent of the federal budget used to go to NASA. Anyway, there are all these kind of pure souls in there who are really educated, really brilliant and aren't doing it for any other reason that they're passionate about. it. It's fun to be around people like that. And they're not celebrities so you can actually have access to them and talk to them as much as you want, which is really fun. There's not a lot of ego to negotiate and deal with. I mean, the different kinds of writing that we were talking about, like the profile writing, seems like such a mind I mean, I did one profile and it was great, but I think like the celebrity profile would be really, I mean, it's a, it would be an interesting challenge, but this was just an opportunity to write whatever story I wanted to write and and it was really fun, and they let me like drive stuff around. You know, I got to go on the zero gravity flight. I got to drive the new lunar rover. I, it ended up being kind of a eulogy in the end because none of that stuff ended up happening, and they just got kneecapped by the budget. Right there, I mean, there were just so many rabbit holes that you could go down in the course of writing a piece. But I spent, a, you know, it took over my life for for like at least half a
1: year. I mean, is that is that like feasible? Like do you earn it a, like a living off of these pieces She paid really well so you actually could afford to spend six months on a piece like that
2: well my, I was, whole my, I was my financial it. plans are not entirely based on doing stuff like that <laughs> like i have some other contingencies yeah. in effect you know yeah. like that's not the way to like necessarily right. feel super comfortable with a couple of kids and everything else but they paid really well and they paid a great travel budget and thanks Jim Nelson it was he was really he was really amazing and Mark Kirby was my editor and he couldn't have been better he's he now edits for Howler the soccer magazine yeah and I loved it it was a great experience and they I mean they're like flush that's what magazines should do they should pay people really well to go out and write stuff like that or I was lucky that I got to do it
1: I was like when I was reading it it was like watching like a like a movie with like a lot of special effects in it I was like oh <laughs> that's a, no Sean, well you know they hired Robert
2: much. Polidori to take the pictures yeah. and Uh, every everywhere that I would go well this is an actual quote from a guy in in Mississippi at the Stennis Space Center he he introduced me to a bunch of rocket engineers he was like this is Sean he's the writer but wait till you meet the photographer he's really famous
1: (laughs) (laughs) so having done you know having done these pieces for the last 10 or 15 years when you went when you look back on them to do this collection like uh, what is it like reading your old shit
2: well, I really rewrote a lot of it. Oh, I it was didn't realize. Kind of painful. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like maybe we should have made a bigger point of that because. You know,
1: I had like a vague feeling of that because I I had read some of the pieces before and I was reading the book and I was yeah. like, wow, this stuff's all like kind of holds together very cohesively.
2: Well, I worked really hard to make it hold together cohesively because I just felt like who needs a book of magazine pieces? I like books of magazine pieces, but yeah. I, did, I felt like they had to be demagazinified because they still had this kind of topicality that was the wrong kind of topicality when I sort of grabbed the final version and looked at it that had been published wherever it had been published and it was a tough road to walk because I didn't want to just put in all the shit that I loved that they had cut because I knew that they had cut it for a good reason
1: yeah I mean that's like a fine line when it's you start a go, super fine line you start really going hard. back to your version you're don't kind of go like, back to your version because it's just your long messy undoing. fucked up draft did you look at like when you started yeah. the process of Yeah. did you look back at your draft Course. before and w- was that fair game like was reverting a fair game or did you have to I have couldn't revert in
2: any case no I had to take certain things that I was like alright well that was interesting But now you're going to have to make that work and put that in. And I had to undo, like, one thing I remember, like, one of the pieces about skateboarding, and it was actually published in a couple of different places, and I melded the two versions. One of them was in Play, which was, like, the New York Times sports magazine for a little while, and the other one was in the LRB, the London Review of Books. And the the version that was in Play, I remember being so pissed, but I was just like, screw it. It was a good paycheck, and it worked out well. Um, They had changed the fact that skaters are always hanging out at fast food restaurants, and I just cited McDonald's and Burger King. They had inserted Jamba Juice, and I was like, fuck Jamba Juice. <laughs> I don't want Jamba Juice in my book. And so that that's like one example of just something like just tiny things, you know? I went right. back and changed little things and then added thousands of words. And then I got people to like read them again and give me their thoughts on it, and,
1: and it was a lengthy process. So when you were like going back to like the first piece, which is about Marfa in nineteen ninety eight, yeah, adding words like what are the what are the there was just some clunky about? prose in there. Okay, but you can't like show false foresight, like ah, I bet, bet Marfa is going to become really popular with the Brooklyn set. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I did not do any false <laughs> yeah. foresight. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: well, you know that piece. I, my friend Paul Greenberg, who's a really good
2: nonfiction writer, who mostly writes about like the ocean and ocean issues, and he's got a new book out now, um, uh, called. What is it called? American Catch. Paul said, and this is just a classic magazine writer credo. He's like, you don't start making money on anything until you've published it three times. And he's right. Like, you've got to figure out a way to sell it to the first magazine, to sell it as a book and ideally to sell some sort of second serial of it somewhere else. And. In the course of that, you'll end up learning things and improving the piece. There's always somebody. The more eyes that get on it, the more fact-checking improvements come along. The whole Marfa piece, the, the first one in the book, had been in, as a special supplement, the Big Ben Sentinel, which is the Marfa paper. So every local person read it and responded to it and told me things. So I was able to make little fact-checking fixes. It felt like me. I wanted the book to feel like me, and I didn't want the book to feel like you were jumping from oh, this has a GQ vibe. This has got a New York Times vibe. This has got a London Review of Books. I just wanted it all to feel like the same voice. So the, a lot of it was was that.
1: And you're now working on a memoir simultaneously about your post-Glory, if at all, uh, experience. It's really
2: a book about Italy, huh. about being an apprentice gondolier, and about, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece, another magazine piece for Gourmet that, there were a bunch of magazine pieces that I wrote that didn't make it into this book, too, because they just didn't feel like thematically they fit in with the rest of it. And it ended up being a book about America. But I've done I've written about other things. And so, you know, the 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 magazine piece I did for Gourmet was about the De Paolo family who run this cheese shop in Little Italy. And they they seem like the most like red sauce Little Italy family ever. But. Once you get to know them, you realize they know more about Italy and they know more about food and culture there than practically anyone I have ever met anywhere. And so I traveled with them a lot back to Italy because they go and they know all their suppliers and they they renew those relationships constantly because it's a very handshaky world, the world of of Italy and food and, and export. Right. Nothing is signed. Everything is, everything is just like mano a mano, like I'm going to look you in the eyes. So... That, that that family, as kind of an antidote to my own family, is probably going to be a pretty significant part of this book, and we've become really close. And they are really patient because I think they thought I was going to write a book about them quite
1: quickly. <laughs>
0: <Just> like,
2: <laughs> it's taken years, you yeah. know, and they're like, Sean, what's the book about us coming out?
1: When you're when you're doing something like that, like uh, touring Italy with a family of uh, uh, Italian-American uh, yeah. uh, grocers uh, or restaurateurs. Yeah. Um, the way you portray yourself in, in the writing I've read is as kind of like a. Um, uh, like a like a lovable goofball, in slightly. A
2: way. Sli- isn't that how I come across in it's, this? A, very and moment? I would say
1: it's not totally inaccurate, but yeah. at the same time, anytime you write about yourself, you right. are you are making yourself a character. Like of course, what like how do you sort of manage that in your writing? Like the 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 Sean Wilsey character that uh, that appears in these pieces, and when you're traveling with them, obviously you're having some effect on how they behave in front of you. And, and, and like, I who, guess I amplify what's your his strategy?
2: flaws significantly more like I'm actually a, a, apparently like a fairly competent person at like getting things done and making deadlines and all yeah. these things but like the we'll see that you might get in whatever the piece about NASA is the guy that eats a ton of oysters and drinks a lot of beer before getting on the vomit comet that guy is me and yet there's a there's just an awareness of yourself and how that's going to fit into what you're writing and how you could you could add I don't know, comedy or pathos through your own activities in a way that maybe you, you know, if I were with my wife and kids trying to, you know, make sure everybody got a good night's sleep and all the things that you do in your your non- Solo life. I'm going to conduct myself really differently.
1: Uh, A different way to describe your describe your character in a lot of these pieces is like a a guy who's willing something bad to happen to him while traveling so he (laughs) could write about it. Like Ah! one of the pieces, you're driving like a truck that can't go above 45 miles an hour from Texas to New York with a companion who desperately needs to get to Washington D.C. for like a a major work commission, and you've got like an old dog in the car, and it's like. It's sort of like a choose your own adventure. It was a little things like that. that can go wrong. Are you lining yourself up to have problems? Or? No, I
2: think I've been like the beneficiary of coincidence yeah. quite a lot. And then I think like for me, and I feel really strongly about this. You can't cheat. You just can't. Yeah, you can do funny stuff and you can insert yourself into a piece and you can be a participatory journalist, but you can't fuck around or fudge like what happened. And a lot of the time things happen and I'm not even really sure how to use them. And you could make a counter argument that all those things were like too cute and too perfect. And so you have to figure out how to like use them in a way that isn't too cute and too perfect and yet is accurate and real. And I mean, I just get infuriated when people take shortcuts and uh, I don't think I'm taking shortcuts in these it, you know, in that way, I, I mean, I don't even know that you're saying that. No, like, no. Actually, I, yeah. my, uh,
1: part of my question is, um, so like this guy who agrees to take this this horrific road trip with you, who's a friend of yours. Are other people in on the fact that you're trying to do something? I didn't really wanna... ill advised because you can't cheat. You are actually going to do something ill advised. No. Well,
2: but no, in that case, I had no intention of writing about it at all. Um, and only about halfway through the piece, there's this moment. Where and I, I'm going to try to quote it where I suddenly realized I'm going to have to write about this. And and it was this moment of despair because that, things stop being fun in the same way when you have to write about them. You're like, crap. Now I have to pay attention. Now I have to write things down. Now I have to make sure that I'm getting this all right. And that happened when we met this lunatic, fascinating um character in San Antonio who took us on this wild tour of San Antonio and who just seemed so improbable as a person and who was the biggest name dropper I've ever encountered and was talking about all these people he knew but it all checked out it was all true and I knew I was like wow this guy is an opportunity to write something here fuck um my fun trip is over but like it didn't begin that way I didn't expect to be writing about it it was really like a lot of people had died in my life I was it was a pretty hard time and I wanted to get this truck back to New York and I wanted to get closer with my friend Michael and it was like this kind of I don't know I feel like the midlife crisis. I'm not quite sure how long it lasts and when it starts, but it felt a little bit like that was a definite <laughs> midlife crisis kind of moment where I felt like, oh, man, all that kind of promise of your 20s. I was in my early 30s where you're like anything could happen and and I could sort of live anywhere, or be anybody or or friendships are going to last forever. I just felt a lot of that stuff kind of slipping away in the obligations of adulthood. And and it, that trip was really conceived as an opportunity to just kind of step out of life for a little while and then it ended up just being something that I had to write about
1: and when you're off you know when you're doing this truck like is anyone calling you back to reality in these sort of in a situations like is your wife saying hey Sean you know it seems very dangerous the way that you're driving this defunct truck and we have kids like I'd prefer you're not like a war journalist but you are sort of putting yourself out in the line well I've definitely wacky had bad things happen
2: to me um, that aren't in this book, that are that are kind of part of this memoir that I'm working on now. Like the real like ultimate midlife crisis thing that I got involved with was when I was forty, and this was in the New Yorker last year. And as part of this memoir, I went back to Venice where I had been an apprentice gondolier, and I rowed a boat that's slightly smaller than a gondola, but still like you know twenty five, twenty seven foot long wooden rowboat, and you stand up to row it all around the Laguna Venice and I camped out on all these abandoned islands in the lagoon and it's dangerous. There are, you know, drug runners and criminals and rats and ghosts. If you believe the hype and all sorts of things that could happen to you out there alone in essentially an urban area uh, that just happens to be an aquatic urban area. And Daphne, she was like, A, are you sure you could actually do this? And B, um, should you maybe bring some kind of weapon along? And C, you definitely need to get a tetanus shot. And I wasn't quite sure that I could do it and nearly failed. Uh, I didn't bring the weapon because it's just always a bad idea. And then I got impaled at one point on, like, an ancient iron fence. and <laughs> had to get, like, sewn up. And I mean, it was really kind of gnarly. And, and I was just like, why am I doing this? And, of course, it was about... Some sort of... I mean, people... Men certainly grow more and more extreme in some ways as we get older. And I I mean, I don't know how many people who, you know, in their 20s were content to just sort of drink a beer and do whatever, who are now just taking massive bicycle trips through Africa or all that kind of, you know... I don't know exactly what you're trying to prove to yourself, um, but it's something. And so... and, And that's definitely what that was for me. And it did result... In some serious bodily harm, and the you know the responsibility involved in kind of having a family is an ongoing question. But like, I don't know. Think of like Bill Finnegan, who's whatever maybe the best nonfiction writer out there. Certainly, he's on my list. Come on the podcast, Mr. yes, yeah, seriously. Yeah. And he's like a crazy big wave surfer. Yeah, you know, and has probably had more close to death experiences
1: than than you know a lot of war
2: correspondents. And of course, he
1: does go to wars <laughs> as well. Do you think like uh, all this time, like I remember when I like read your, your first book, uh, glory of it all. And I don't know exactly what sort of led you to have the emotions that then put you in a place where you wanted to be, did not really want to be, but ended up in these schools, which are in many ways, sort of about modifying your emotional process and how you process the world. And you've now been, uh, in, in, in your writing sort of, been analyzing that about yourself now for you know 20 or 20 or so odd years is is it is it therapeutic I mean does it do you feel like your writing ha- has changed your the way that you perceive the world
2: I probably look at writing from a professional standpoint more than as an opportunity for personal growth I'm obsessed with Writing a good sentence and organizing thoughts in a way that is really as beautiful or elegant as possible. And so, by the time I take really like raw material and try to work it into something that you could read, I've usually like worked on that material in some other way in order to be able to deal with it on the page. I, so, I guess the answer is that writing isn't necessarily a cathartic process, but at the end, it is the final stage maybe of a cathartic process, but it's not like it feels like I'm working out these things in writing. It feels like the writing is the conclusion of the having worked out the stuff.
1: Does that necessitate then that you need a certain amount of sort of time to move from like, do you have like a clock like, okay, time to start working on the early 30s. It's like a
2: 20 year clock. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's like 10 to 15 years. It's funny. I was talking to, um, I did one of those, uh, Atlantic interviews about a quote from literature that you really love and the quote that I really love is from Casanova and he says I'm writing my life to laugh at myself and I am succeeding and I feel like it, it has to get funny to me before I feel like I've dealt with it and I think the raw recent stuff is rarely funny and it's really painful and I usually like to write about other people. And this book is largely about other people. But yet, I realize that I've had this kind of eventful, strange life that is suited to memoir. And for whatever reason, I seem capable of writing about it as memoir. But the clock definitely has to tick long enough for me to get away from it and to be able to
1: laugh at it. When you look back and you've had that, um, you know, your uh, 10, 15 year waiting period um, where you're allowed to look at your own life and then you and then you put something down and it's sort of locked locked in stone then because you've written about it. I mean, do you ever think about like your kids, let's say when they're teenagers reading about teenage you as written by a 30-ish you and how they'll think about you?
2: I think it's gonna be a difficult experience for them. I mean, my kids and I talk about pretty much everything that they wanna talk about. It's not like I'm like urging them to talk about difficult stuff. And, And all you really wanna do is protect your kids. And for me, realizing that they're going to be exposed to things that their beloved grandmother did and said and to just I don't think that my kids necessarily venerate me as an all-knowing paternal figure so I don't think it's going to come as a great surprise to them that I had some kind of wild checkered confused adolescence but but yeah uh, it, it, I don't know that it's possible for me to destroy every copy of that book before <laughs> Well, I was going to say, it. the
1: Internet's really going to, like, catch you. Although, you do have the possibility that they're just going to not give a shit, which I can see. Like, I could see just being like, oh, that book about my dad? I don't know. It seems kind of log.
2: I never read the books that my mom wrote when I was a kid. What were, what were the books your mom wrote about? Oh, she wrote a bunch. Um, she was, like, quite a successful um, kind of fashion lifestyle writer. She wrote a book about giving parties. It was called How to Be a Party Girl. Uh, she wrote a book about kind of a San Francisco-based memoir about living on uh, the crooked block of Lombard in a, in a house that was inhabited by poltergeists. <laughs> it was kind of like a
1: pot boiler, And I don't know, I just never wanted to read them yeah. particularly. Do you think your kids have the experience of like, so you grew up in sort of a, a San Francisco society uh, milieu, Do you think your kids have the um, the idea that they're growing up with like a wild itinerant writer father or are they just
2: all kids really want is to feel loved and noticed and taken and acknowledged. And I think like I do that. And other than that, I don't really think that they have a great deal of awareness or even interest in conceiving of their parent in those terms not at least at least not yet you know maybe maybe when they're teenagers i don't know i mean there's like gradations of self-awareness certainly in the new york child that can get pretty extreme yes and we've really tried to like shelter our kids from that level of self-consciousness because i think it's like jesus man where do you go from there
1: When you, when you start going, I mean, you talked about like when you're putting together the Marfa Peeps, you go look at, talk to the local newspaper reporters, you go sort of people, you, you lean on people to help you assemble what you need. Who who do you, when you're going to write a memoir, who do you, who do you lean on? Definitely people
2: in my family. Um, I mean, there are helpful people in the family and there are unhelpful people in the family, but like. It's they. It's kind of their story too. So people that I feel like will be helpful. I always want to talk to them. Yeah. And then there's just a ton of Italy centric research that is you know like I worked as a waiter for a couple of restaurants and and uh, and they were really very I don't know. You ever read Down and Out in Paris and London? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And the level of Pl- s- Yeah, man. Well, the level of squalor and just angst. And and tension in the restaurants that I worked in it was really like on that level, and I really would love to write a relatively up to date version of that. And then it's like, but you got to think about Bourdain and like, hey, and how what he did and how to deal with all that stuff. And then there's a lot of the people that I worked with were immigrants, and whether or not I can find them now and talk to them about it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you can just go down that rabbit hole forever. And at a certain point, you're like, all right, man, like, is this research? evasion or is it adding depth to the story like a lot of what i did today was working on the restaurant stuff and it happened to be going on i was working there during the gulf war or during desert shield the lead up to the gulf war and one of my co-workers was an egyptian and they were always pitting us against each other to see which one of us was ultimately just gonna snap on the other one. And it wasn't gonna be me. Like but the and the Egyptian and I were actually really good friends <laughs> and liked each other a lot. So we would stage these encounters to just fuck with the Italians. And and it's fun to recreate the political environment that was going on in Italy at that time there were tons of protests going on Americans were supposedly targeted for terrorist attacks in in Florence which is where I was working at the time my mother was really panicked she wanted to get me out of there how do you,
1: how do you like go about finding a guy you worked at an Italian restaurant with in the 90s
2: the restaurant's still there yeah so that's a start uh the the people a lot of people go into to the restaurant business as a career in Italy so it's not that hard to find some of them Mm -hmm. and Peepo was a really good he was a really good sous chef so I have no doubt that that like he continued doing what he did he wanted to he wanted to move back to Egypt though he had this plan that he was saving up to buy all these mechanical scarecrows (laughs) And he's going to take them back to Egypt. And just I guess there were a lot of there's a lot of crows along the Nile that just had not that you know Western scarecrow technology. And so I don't know if he went back. I I really don't know. And it's to me that's not crucial. There are other people that I desperately want to find. Um, one of the characters in the in the book is my sister, um, who didn't come up at all in the first book. She's my half sister. She's 20 years older than I am. She took a trip to italy with our dad in 68 where she went over on a a, the italian lines they didn't fly they took a they took a boat the italian lines flagship the michelangelo and my dad apparently had this like shipboard romance with a french countess and i want to find that fucking countess you know (laughs) and it's proving really difficult there's no um manifest of who was on that not that I've been able to find. Like certainly the Italians don't seem to have anything. The port of uh, you know the Port Authority of New York doesn't have anything about about departures. They've just got arrivals. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find her, but I really really want to. Uh, because she's going to have a whole other take on it.
1: When I read through uh, the collection, More Curious, it has a real arc to it, even though they're individual pieces. It's and now, now, I, now, I it, now I know that you uh, <laughs> yeah, based right. it at that over the top like a barbecue <laughs> yeah, sauce. Right. But when you're working fresh, like in the case of this book, yeah. do you know sort of uh, thematically do you know kind of the arc that you're going for and you're kind of like trying to assemble it or are you discovering this stuff in real time and seeing what you've got at the end as you go and find countesses? Ideally, I I like to
2: have some, and I feel like it's kind of a challenge on this book right now because I don't have it yet, something that you're like, that's the end. And once you've got that... Then you're just, like, writing to it. Mm-hmm. And it's like you see it there. But otherwise, there's this strange feeling of just being at sea with your material. And you're like, well, this is good, but where's this going to go? So I'm I, I'm still trying to get to that end thing. Although it's funny, actually. now As I say that, I'm like, oh, Sean, you kind
1: of do have the end. So you don't know whether this um, uh, countess is going to be something that doesn't even make it or could be the supply of the central theme, something that she says or reveals. Sure, yeah. Do you have you picked up like detective skills over the years in trying to do this kind of stuff? I mean, does it require advanced yeah, googling you know, and that kind of thing?
2: I'm not a very I'm not like the world's greatest googler. I think that usually I, I like to try try and follow like a trail of people. You just start if you find somebody who was on that ship, and you just ask them like a million questions about it. And I love to re-interview people as many times as they'll let me until you get some final detail that they'd forgotten about and then you're like oh okay i can take that and like talk to somebody else about that and it just goes on pretty much indefinitely a lot of the time you'll read some old piece of journalism and you're like wow why didn't they follow that there's just something in there and probably because they were on a deadline and they had to get it they had to get it done the same day they were writing it but there's just so many clues out there to potentially hook into and try to you know find more stuff through that seems like
1: as good a place to stop as any yeah thank you very much uh the book is more curious uh it's out from mcsweeney's uh we'll link to it in the show notes and are any of those pieces online or have they all been pulled down in advance of the book i think there. are i think that some of them are
2: definitely online
1: well don't read the online ones because they don't have that they're not, special they, they're barbecue not they don't have that sauce thank you sean wilsey we'll be back next week And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. Uh, Thanks very much to my guest, Sean Wilsey. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our unstoppable editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our equally unstoppable intern, Timothy Maddox. Um, Thanks to our sponsor this week, GoDaddy. Remember again, you can go to GoDaddy.com and use the promo code FORUM30 to get 30% off and support this show. And of course, thanks to our longtime Uh, never going to stop loving you sponsor tiny letter. It's a email newsletter service from the good people at MailChimp. Thanks to them. Thanks to all the listeners. We'll be back next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running